0: The Archangel Chronicles by Raymond Collati. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. Gabriel, We are Gabriel. We stand in the presence of Elohim, the Eternal One. We have come as water is poured from a silver vessel to occupy this time and space. Hear us, little one, son of dust, but beloved of the Most High. Listen to the story of how heaven touched your world. Listen and record the things we will reveal to you. And ponder them. We were thought into existence by Elohim the Most High, the Eternal Presence, before the dawn of time. We sprang from His thought before the foundations of your world. We sang the songs that brought all you perceive into being at His will. We sang before the firmament. We were at hand before there was light. We were there before there was darkness over the face of the deep. We sang eternal praises to Elohim who willed the firmament into being and separated light from darkness. We were there when Elohim separated the waters from the deep and when he set it aside from all material things. We were there when the expanse became heaven and we are here now and always and can be there and here at all times and places For we do not exist in your time. We were there when your earth was formed, singing praises to Elohim, when the earth sprouted all life in abundance that begat humankind. I tell you these things are in the mind of Elohim and were brought into being after time began to run. For what in his mind unfolds in a moment is an eternity in your time. You are made of dust, a cloud of atoms, yet you are beloved by Elohim, for you were formed from dust and spirit. You think you are real, but you are nothing more than shadows projected in a cave. You watch the shadows from the light cast from behind you and give names to them. You think they are real, but they are not, for reality is far greater than you can comprehend. These things are hidden from you. You see through a glass, darkly. Your experience and thought are bound by the chains of time and matter. But human, you are all beloved of Elohim. You are formed from the very soil, but you have, each of you, a spirit that never ceases to search for him. Humankind was thought into existence by Elohim, from the very earth on which you stand. But the enemy, whose name shall not be said, was full of envy. Out of envy he formed hatred of humankind and resolved to destroy you. The enemy, the oppressor, was the greatest of my order. He refused to obey Elohim, for he had given man and woman spirit and placed them in the material realm. In his jealousy, he summoned his will and caused a riff with Elohim and seduced humankind to think that they were gods. Elohim summoned his angels to cast the enemy out of the realm and into your material world. The enemy and his allied spirits, in their very essence, withered and darkened into deep wells of hatred and malice, far away from the presence and sustaining love of the Most High. The enemy and his legions shrank away, banished from the luminous light, and crept away out of sight into dark places awaiting their chance. Then Elohim, whose love is fierce, as fierce as lightning is fierce to you, sent his essence into your world to unite humankind in body and soul to himself. And so, ages and ages ago, by your reckoning, we were sent by the will of Elohim to a town in Galilee called Nazareth. There I saw a girl named Mary, espoused to a good man her protector, whose name was Joseph. And the great spirit, the procleate, entered her mind, and revealed his presence, and we hailed her as the most worthy of all women of all ages. It was revealed to Mary that she had found the grace of Elohim, and that it was his will that she bring forth a son, and that she shall call him Jesus, and his kingdom will have no end. And we have made it known to her that the power of the Most High will send the Spirit of Holy Wisdom to overshadow her, and she shall bear a child, and the child shall be called the Son of God. Then it was that this simple woman with the luminous soul Beloved of the Most High surrendered to his will and all the legions of my order sang the song of the universe as the child was brought into the world. We knew that the shadows were gathering for the enemy will not surrender to Elohim's will. He set all the powers of his realm in the dark places where no light escapes against this child and resolved to degrade humiliate and destroy him. Now it was our mission to will ourselves to the place where a man you know as Adam was imprisoned behind thick stone walls. I tell you that Adam had passed beyond the thought of those who put him there, beyond hope. But I surrounded the space where he was and entered through the walls of his cell for they were no more substantial to me than mists and clouds are to you. Neither matter nor walls shall contain us. I revealed myself, for Elohim had a purpose for him. Listen to me, O scribe, and write down what I say, for never was there such a story as this. You stand looking into a mirror, with another mirror at your back. What you will see is an endless display of images, stretching back to eternity, each succeeding image slightly smaller than the one before. So it was that day, It was an otherwise unremarkable day among many others. Each day shrank into a smaller reflection of the day before, stretching back so far and fading into my memory. No one had spoken to me for many days. I sat, dressed in grey overalls on a simple cot, covered with a grey threadbare blanket. The whitewashed walls of my rectangular cell rose high to the stone ceiling. If I stood and stretched out my arms, I could touch both walls. There was a bucket at the foot of my cot that was my toilet. A rickety table filled the space between my cot and the sidewall with a chipped enamel basin of water perched precariously at the edge. Near the foot of my bed was a cold wall of iron. A small hinged door was the only opening to the outside world. Each morning, very early, that little door flips open and I pass the soiled bucket from the night through the opening. Then comes a tin plate with a grey breakfast. Then again at lunch, a tin cup with a cold tea and a sandwich. And at supper, a mushy stew in the early evening on each of these occasions as the little door flips open a hand appears to give or take back the offering this is all done wordlessly i spoke to no one for many months on the opposite end of my cell close to the ceiling and too high for me to reach was a small rectangular window penetrating the thick stone wall the opening is crisscrossed by thick iron bars. There is no glass. If I stand with my back to the cold iron wall on my tiptoes, I can just see a patch of blue sky. At times, I can see a wisp of cloud, and after dark, a few lonely stars twinkling in the inky darkness beyond. In the evenings, or on dark, rainy days, the only light in my cell comes from a single naked light bulb affixed to the ceiling, surrounded by a wire cage. It casts a spider web shadow on the whitewashed walls. Today, like countless others before it, I sat in my solitary confinement. I was taken to this unknown place, utterly devoid of color, but for that distant, unglazed window high beyond my reach. I was sitting, as I have done for many days, on my cot, bare feet on the cold stone floor, my head down. I was staring at a small rivulet of ants streaming up and down an invisible highway, bearing away the remains of my afternoon meal. I watched the quirky patterns of the tiny insect movements, dashing, darting, circling, antenna waving, following a ragged invisible trail of their own making across the stone floor up the wall to the barred window, and then out into the open world beyond. I sensed the presence. At first there was a whisper, a mere breath of air. I saw the briefest flicker of light, but it broadened gradually into a series of colors, then slowly assembled into the shape of a pillar of light, which emerged through the walls of my cell. At first, this pillar of light was hardly discernible, but as I gazed, the colors coalesced into a bright, then a blinding, white-hot fire. It was like water, quicksilvered and flowing. As I lifted my head, I gazed upon this light and saw movement within it, a swirling rush of flame, and then images of waterfalls, soaring birds, and many, many eyes, terrible to behold. I recoiled in terror, my breath quickening. I fell upon my hands and knees and looked away, unable to comprehend what I was seeing. My senses were overwhelmed. My cell became ever brighter. Light penetrated into the very pores of my skin, my bones, and my blood. In my terror, I could no longer bear to gaze directly at this apparition. After a time, I noticed that If I looked away and glanced sideways out of the corner of my eye, the swirling images in the pillar coalesced into a face, and then slowly a head, and then a body transparent and clothed in shimmering, dazzling white robes, which were trailing behind this being as if he were travelling at great speed. But yet here he was, standing still. I perceived that the face was that of a man, His dazzling, pulsing white robes were girded at his waist by a belt of pure gold. His face shone like lightning, flashing blue and white-hot. His expression was impassive, his eyes hawk-like, his platinum hair long and streaming as if wind-blown. He looked down at me as if from a great height. Here was the manifestation of a beauty so intense, so bright, and so full of potential that I could scarcely breathe. It hurt to look upon this wondrous being, and it filled me with both rapture and terror at the same time. Adam aliqui, boomed a thousand voices in my head. I was struck dumb and could not speak. I crouched on the floor on my knees, my forehead pressed to the cold stone floor. I closed my eyes and covered my ears, I felt my blood tingle as if standing too close to an immense source of electric power. Adam, do not fear. I have come for you, thundered the voices. I felt these words through my whole body and soul. Knew I must be hallucinating. My mind raced. My training and experience had taught me that deprived of sensory stimuli, the mind will descend to a psychotic break. I must be seeing and hearing things that weren't really here. There's no way this could be happening. It must be hallucination. It must be a dream. My head was buzzing. I felt faint. Gathering my wits, I shouted without looking up. Go away! You aren't real. This is a dream, a nightmare. Leave me alone. Stand tall and see, echoed the voice in my head. But I cannot bear to look upon you. I am afraid, you are not real, I am dust which will fall away if I look upon you. Forgive me, it is like being pierced by a knife to look upon your face. You are right to say that you are dust, but you are dust made from the dust of stars. If I were to touch you, it would unmake you. But you are in the body the Most High gave you, and you are beloved. "'You cannot be real. "'You are a vision produced by my brain. "'I cannot bear to look upon you. "'That is because we are not at the right distance.' "'There came a rushing sound like a great wind. "'As I watched, the pillar receded "'and then shaped itself into a series "'of shimmering chariot wheels "'spinning within each other, "'round and round, radiating emerald, "'diamond, blue, green,' and violet. It made me dizzy. I still cannot bear to look upon this for long. The shimmering wheels receded slowly, until they were but a pinpoint. At length, I saw a figure of a tall, athletic man, clothed in bright white linen, his gowns gently moving as if stirred by a wind, his belt of bright gold and his face chiseled with a smooth angular jaw, flashing blue eyes beneath straight brows. His mouth was set with firm metallic lips in an expression which was neither a smile nor a frown. I found that I could now look upon this being without fear, without pain or terror. I began to feel a great sense of peace, but I still knew I must be immersed in a dream. He bowed his head to me and spoke again quietly but firmly. Adam, Eloqui, do not be afraid. Come. Who are you? Where do you come from? I am Gabriel. I have been sent from beyond your time to summons you from this place. Where are we going? On a journey. Prepare. How am I to prepare? How can I leave this place? It has been ordained that you shall leave. You will go now to the place of the living waters. Will you come? Without waiting for an answer, this luminous being lifted up his hands and raised his face upwards. A great light again filled my cell, blinding me. THE WALLS DISSOLVED INTO BRIGHT SUNLIGHT. I FELT A GREAT RUSHING WIND. I CLOSED MY EYES. A GREAT RUMBLING FILLED MY EARS. THEN THERE WAS SILENCE. Camilla. Sunset, darkening clouds scudding over a steel-grey sea, a mean gale blowing towards the shore, tossing up the swells and churning the crashing waves against the rocks of the harbour breakwall. On the horizon, the setting sun drew a bright orange band beneath the dark clouds, illuminating the churning waters and splashing the wave tops with orange and blood-red light. I stood alone at the clifftop, searching the distance. A speck appeared on the horizon, backlit by the setting sun. It grew larger and larger. I saw the lone ship approaching fast before the gathering storm. It was a warship, a trireme, the ram projecting from the bow at the waterline like a beak parting the waves throwing up spray the purple mainsail and the bowsprit billowing out running with the wind she was coming in fast her hull catching the last rays of the sun gleaming white at the waterline as the ship approached the harbor the mainsail was taken out down in unison Three rows of oars thrust themselves out from the numerous ports, and the wind carried the sound of drums beating methodically with the movement of oars. Forward. Pause. Stroke. Pause. Forward. The vessel seemed like a centipede scurrying over a heaving floor. The ship was closer now, so much so that I, looking down, could discern the individual faces of the sailors on the top deck. At the stern, four sailors strained at two massive steering oars, extending down into the water. They turned in unison, and the bow of the craft moved into the harbour. Far below the cliff on which I was standing, two arms of the stone seawall reached out, Blocking the heaving sea. The waves broke against the smooth stones, throwing up a fine mist high into the air, which is caught by the wind. The lowering sun was reflected in the glittering rainbow. The water within the harbor was calm. A few smaller fishing vessels lay at anchor or in line with the wharves projecting out from the shore. At the bow of the ship stood a tall figure, his blood-red military cape, was caught by the quickening wind. It clinged to his back and flapped along each side of his body. He wore a breastplate and a purple-plumed helmet. Although his face was hidden in the shadows, there was no doubt that this was a person accustomed to command, and no doubt he had come to the small island on a mission. The ship was at the harbor entrance where charcoal braziers at the end of each mole were now being lit. The ship slowed as it approached the wharf. The rhythm of the drum beats stopped. The pattern of the beats changed. Suddenly, the row of oars changed directions, some back stroking in union. The ship comes to a full stop. Another drum beat, and each bank of oars pulls in opposite directions. The ship makes a complete turn. Another drum beat. This time, the shoreward bank of oars disappears into the ship. The seaward oars move rhythmically back and forth, never coming out of the water, propelling the craft sideways towards the wharf. Now the ship comes to rest, and the oars were all shipped. The gangplanks were lowered. The command figure, now wrapped in his cloak like a cocoon, strode in even steps down the gangplank to shore. Then he looked up to me on the cliff. He nods. I turn away and hurried down the stone steps, making for the wharf. I met the commander as he was coming up from the harbor. By now, the shadows in the narrow streets leading away from the harbor were growing dark. The men following the commander lit torches to light the way. Two of them stepped forward and led the group. Two other lictors with their bundles of rods and axes flanked the imposing figure of the commander. For fifteen minutes or so, We walked through the gloaming in silence. We climbed up the path from the harbour to a villa at the head of a bluff. Coming to an iron gate, one of the lictors stepped forward and shouted, In the name of the Emperor, open the gate! The door of the villa opened, and a short, bald-headed servant scurried to the gate, bearing a ring of keys. He fumbled about the lock on the gate and lifted one of them, hands shaking, into the lock. The gate squealed as it was pushed back by the commander. At the door, he turned and said to his followers, Wait here. His retainers stepped aside obediently. Gesturing to me, he said, You, come now. We went through the door and up a long, winding staircase, the commander, now bearing a torch, himself leading the way. I followed after him closely. Reaching the top, we turned down a long hallway, the torchlight gleaming off alabaster walls. At the head of the hallway, we came to a door. Without knocking, he pushed it open and plunged through. We were in a room at the top of the villa. Far below, I could hear the surf pounding the rocks through an open window. I caught my breath and tried to focus my eyes to the dim light. It was a small room, lit by olive oil lamps, mounted on the walls. In the center, on a bare pallet, lay a young woman in great distress. She was pregnant. And obviously in heavy labor. She was being attended to by three slaves. Two stood at the head of the pallet. The third leaned forward, hands on the woman's belly, probing. One of the slaves was holding the woman's arms above her head. The woman was struggling, twisting and turning in agony, side to side. One of the slaves held her arms fast, keeping the woman on her back, following directions from the midwife. The woman on the pallet was panting quickly, her soiled garments drenched in sweat. At regular intervals she screamed, her back arching as her body tensed, then collapsing into a limp mass, her cries fading back into a heavy pant. The commander's torch cast the room with a flickering red light. The commander stepped forward hesitantly. How long has she been like this, he asked. The midwife turned to him. This is her twelfth hour. And how much longer do you think, whispered the commander. The pains are close now. I think it should come within the hour. I must return to my ship. You know what to do. You will send the child to me immediately. The midwife looked back to the girl and said, And what of her? She is not to see the baby, not even for a moment. You are to see that this girl recovers and is kept in the room. She is not to leave. I will send further instructions. Turning to me, he said sternly, You will wait here. When the child is born, you will bring it back to me at the ship. You will come with me to Rome. You will ensure that this baby survives. It will be a responsibility. The infant's fate is now tied to your own. As for the girl, he continued, her fate is sealed. She must never leave this place. As you command, Domini, I said and bowed my head. You will tell no one about this child, do you understand? Yes, Dominic, I understand. With this, the commander abruptly turned, ducked as he exited the doorway, and shut the door behind, locking it from the outside. I was left in the room with the slaves, the midwife, and the girl in labor, the woman, cried out in pain in her agony. I approached her and knelt beside her head. I whispered in her ear, Domina, it won't be long now. You must gather your strength. Do what I tell you. She turned her face toward me. In her distress, through a haze of pain, she dimly became aware of my presence. Her brow was furrowed. Her eyes focused on my face, then widened in alarm and recognition. You again? Why are you here, she whispered. To save your child, to take her to a new life, I said as I wiped her brow. Prologue, Herod. My hour is coming. Come close and listen, for my time is short. I lived as I have lived and make no apologies. Some may accuse, but I have done what I have done and will be judged by no one, mortal or no, to confess or justify my deeds. These were troubled times and I administered strong medicine, no matter the cost. At first, the Romans came as arbiters. They came to our lands, seeking to make peace among warring factions in our civil wars. There were many Jews who were in favor of their coming. But slowly, the Roman grip on our lands tightened. Judea became a Roman protectorate, a vassal state. But they did not know how to control my people. Civil wars arose time and time again between the brothers of the high priest, each seeking to supplant the other. The Romans intervened, first for one side and then the other. They cast about, looking to find some kind of regime that would suit their purposes. Pompey Magnus captured the temple in this war and installed his own high priest, John Ricanus, the second of that name as ruler. My father was called by his Greek name Antipater. He was not from Judea, but Idumea to the south. Though he worshiped the God of Abraham for generations, the Jews looked upon us as if we were outsiders. But we saw opportunity We would rule this land. We would become the masters of Israel. My father became indispensable to the Romans. Pompey appointed him as master of the palace and overseer of the high priest. But then the Romans themselves fell into civil war. My father was a friend of Pompey's, but then managed to become an even greater friend of Caesar's. Caesar liquidated his great rival. My my father became so much of a friend to Caesar that he was appointed procurator, and his sons, my brother Faziel and myself, were given two military commands. It was thus that I became strategos of Galilee. I knew how to exercise power and make decisions. I put down uprisings against our new order. I defied the Sanhedrin. And turned them to my will. Then came the Ides of March, and Caesar succumbed to the daggers of the Republican conspirators. My father, my brother, and I knew we had to play a dangerous game, and threw in our lot with the new proconsul of Syria, Cassius, and became his friend. There was another revolt, for the Jews chafed under the burden of the Roman Tribute. I marched my troops and crushed it. My father was poisoned by a traitor. I resolved to glorify the family name. Again, the Romans convulsed into civil war. My brother and I now became friends to Mark Antony. Antony, in gratitude for our services to his cause, appointed us tetrarchs. Ricanus, the high priest, we confined to his tasks and priestly duties, we ruled the land. But our eyes remained fixed on Rome, and we looked to see which of the two triumvirates, Antony or Octavian, would prevail. Antony, seduced by that which Cleopatra, abandoned all responsibility, and chaos enveloped our lands. The Parthians to the east, supporting another contender for the throne, Antigonus by name, and last of the Maccabees, swept in and occupied our lands. They were supported by many Jews who had chafed under Ro- the Roman yoke. Jerusalem was occupied. Antigonus bribed the Parthians by promising a thousand silver talents and five hundred maidens. The Romans were consumed by their new civil war. For too long was our lifeblood poured out. Antigonus declared himself high priest and king. He summoned Hyrcanus before him and bit his ears, disfiguring him and rendering him unsuitable for the priesthood. My brother Phasael died escaping Antigonus's forces. He was my one true friend, and I shed bitter tears at his loss. Now I steeled myself. I had no one else to depend upon. I reached the fortress of Masada on the Dead Sea. From there I went to Rome and pled my cause. I arrived at the moment in time when Octavian and Antony had made peace with each other for a while. I was only 23 years old, but I had cards to play. I was betrothed to Mariamne, the fairest princess in all of Israel. She was a Hasmonean of the Maccabees, There was a great alliance for me, for now I could give a claim to the throne of Judea. The Romans were far too occupied to trouble with us. They now looked to me to put an end to the Jewish turmoil. By decree of the Senate of Rome I was named King of Judea. On that day by God I swore I would return Israel to its greatness. I would restore its lands and wealth. I would surpass David and Solomon in splendor and make this land the jewel of the East. I raised an army and for three years struggled against the usurper Antigonus in furious and ruthless battle. With eleven legions and six thousand cavalry I retook Jerusalem. I decimated the Sanhedrin and beheaded Antigonus. I spiked his head at the city gates. The Romans again fell into civil war. When at last Octavian's fleet crushed Antony and Cleopatra's at actium, I knew what to do. My policy was always to be on good terms with the Romans. That was the way to power. And the man who now ruled Rome was Octavian now called Augustus. So I went to him and knelt at his feet. I told him with no apology, looking him straight in the eye, that I had been Antony's faithful friend. I told him that I had tried to hold Antony back from his dark alliance with that witch Cleopatra. I pleaded that if he trusted me, I would be a most faithful friend to him as well. Augustus saw the wisdom in trusting me and reaffirmed my kingship. I knew I had to serve the Romans and to protect their interests by armed intervention and to crush their enemies, for they were my enemies as well. That was the way to power. And now I set about remaking this land. I summoned builders, engineers, and architects from all over the world. I imported the best Greek artists and sculptors. It began to remake the face of the land. I built the great harbor of and the city of Caesarea. Fortresses I built across the land to hold it pacified. Gymnasiums and theaters and circuses I raised. The Roman legions withdrew to Syria, where I knew I could call upon them for support. I raised my own personal army of Germans, Gauls, and Thracian mercenaries. My private bodyguard, men from Galatia, were magnificent, admired, even in Rome. I raised tribute for Rome, but I also levied taxes for myself. I appointed high priests, taking care to choose them from priestly families, but of modest standing. I summoned all the resources of the land, all of its talents, all of its workers, builders, architects, and in Jerusalem built the greatest temple in all the world. For forty years of my kingship we labored at these great tasks. The area of the Temple Mount was doubled and surrounded by a retaining wall with gates. The temple was raised, enlarged, and faced with white stone. It became a wonder of the world. Now, surely the Jews would love us. But they hated me. They hated me because I was Idumean. They whispered that I was barely circumcised. They saw me as a son of Esau. They accused me of breaking the commandments. But I imposed my will and crushed my rivals. I recruited corps of secret agents and spies who told me everything I needed to know about who was against me. I did not hesitate to use assassins in order to keep order where necessary. I had to hang a few Pharisees for criticizing me too loudly. Then 300 officers, suspected of plotting against me in Samaria, were dispatched by my police. Then there was that revolutionary who tried to dispose of the gold eagle, that I had placed on the gate of the temple. I had him burnt alive. But the plots continued to boil up. The land was in a state of unrest. Purge followed purge. There was no shortage of supplicants whispering rumors of plots in my ears. Their poison reached deep within my soul. Even my own sons turned against me, I made sure that the last of those Asmoneans were dealt with, drowned by my guards in a swimming pool. I had ten wives, but the greatest of these was Maryamne. Since the day I first laid my eyes on her, she bound me up with a terrible love. But even she plotted against me, and so I had her executed. Five of her sons followed her to the grave. There was no rest for me. I was growing tired. And then came these visitors from the east with their message. There was another rifle to be hunted down like a rabbit in its warren.